Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Linda Ho is the Chief People Officer at Seismic, an AI-powered sales enablement platform that improves team productivity, collaboration, and knowledge sharing. As a Chief People Officer, Linda leads the company's initiatives around culture, org development, talent acquisition, total rewards, and internal communications. Prior to joining Seismic, Linda spent 14 years in various HR leadership roles at Autodesk, most recently as a vice president and focused on creating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive work environment. Linda was named a top 50 women leaders in SaaS by the Software Report and has been featured as a thought leader in publications such as Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. Linda holds an MBA from the University of Washington and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of California. In this episode, you'll learn about Linda's experience immigrating to California as a young child, how Linda's experience as a social worker convinced her to pursue a career in business, and Linda's priorities as Chief People Officer during this time of immense change in the industry. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoyed the episode. Hey, Linda, how are you doing? I'm great, Justin. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, excited for the conversation. I know we're just a couple of days away from the U.S. Thanksgiving. Um, so before we kind of get into the conversation, what are you most looking forward to uh, for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday? Thanksgiving is actually my favorite holiday. Um, doesn't feel too materialistic compared to some of the other yeah. holidays that are around the corner. And it's centered around family and food. And I feel like you can learn so much about a culture and about a person by the food that they eat and the conversations that happen spontaneously around the food. So yeah. it's my favorite holiday. And I'm so thankful that this year my family can get together. We're, you know, braving COVID and all the implications yes. to do that. Um, so it feels very satisfying. Yes, totally, 100%. I was um, in Canada, obviously, we celebrate Thanksgiving roughly a month in advance. And it was the same sentiment because for the first time in two years, we had mm -hmm. our extended family come over. And there was just such a, a joy in just connecting people. And again, over food, just being in the same space, it was a little bit crowded. But... Uh, it was really fun to do that after two years of hibernating and being in our little bubble. So <laughs> I'm sure you're looking forward to that. And then even on that, what is your typical, if there is one, typical Thanksgiving type of menu? Because in my household and in my like, you know, family's household, we would always kind of have a hybrid type of Chinese Canadian Thanksgiving, right? There would be a chicken instead of a turkey because everybody thought turkey would be too dry. And there was always like side dishes of rice and noodles and bok choy and all the other victims with, with gravy and stuffing. So I'm curious if in your household and family, there's kind of a hybrid type of menu or is it Definitely. more traditional? Okay. There's the integration of cultures that I love. So often we'll do the traditional turkey or we'll do a turducken because you know, that's exciting oh, yeah. and new. 
Um, but we typically will have Peking duck. Um, we'll have some kimchi on the side because that's my husband's family is Korean. Yeah. And we just like to mix it all together. And it's this beautiful integration of cultures. Yes, yes, for sure. And I, my wife is Korean and I'm Chinese. And yes, yeah, so there's always kimchi all over in our, in our fridge and different types of kimchi. So I feel like it's a, one of the best uh, side dishes and uh, compliments to any meal, even it if is. it's pizza, right? I'll put it on my pizza. So. In the past, um, but, I was inspired, yeah. especially during the pandemic, to make kimchi and give it to friends. But um, now things have picked up a little bit. It's a little bit harder to devote the time. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, and definitely want to spend some time talking about your background and upbringing and what your childhood was like. But before we get into that, I actually wanted to discuss a little bit more about what you're seeing in terms of potential shifts in trends around people and culture, right? And, you know, for me specifically being in tech and, and you as well, I feel like obviously with the changing macroeconomic environment that has put a lot of pressure on leaders and organizations to think differently and to be frank change expectations of what their workforce might be not just around work from home but even um you know level of intensity and commitment and also job security so would actually just love to start with hearing your perspective of of what trends and shifts you've seen in the last six to twelve months in in your world yeah, we are definitely in unprecedented times. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we will forever be in unprecedented times because the pace of change is just so fast and highly unpredictable. So leaders will continue, I think, to struggle to hold on to talent because in these times of change, there creates opportunities for people mm -hmm. and good people will always have opportunities. And the big anchor that I'm hearing is anchoring on ways that we can engage employees so they can be more productive during this time of change. How do we have people focus on the purpose of the company, be aligned with where we're going, understand when we need to make very difficult decisions, like some of the layoffs that we've heard, and still continue to move forward as one unit. Um, so I think culture, I think engaging employees, thinking about productivity and engagement in a very different way than we, how we mm. thought about it before is going to be key. Mm. Yeah. And then even at, at your organization, Seismic, what has been the stance on return to office and hybrid uh, work environment? Yeah. Well, I think everybody gathering around one office is a dream that uh, is not going to be carried into the future, right? Mm -hmm. So hybrid work just opens up opportunities, opens up talent that we've never been able to tap into before, and really truly mirrors our customers, because our customers are everywhere. And if we're putting on the hat of customer first and taking on their needs and their lens, we need to have our employees reflect our customers. So I think for most companies, um, unless you're in you know, manufacturing where you have to physically be in a site, yeah. hybrid work is here to stay. But the behaviors associated with how to make hybrid work really productive are still being developed. So when you have someone in the office and they're having a meeting and you're dialing in remotely, how do you create you know, an environment where it feels like you're on an equal footing um, mm -hmm. and collaborating in the best way possible? There's certainly systems and tools that can help. Um, and then there's also behaviors that we need to embrace. Mm, yeah. And like 
you're mentioning it, it really is around fine tuning and finding the right balance for your employee base and individuals and, and teams. So I feel like it's a constant iteration. I think for me personally, what I found is I definitely love the in-person experience, but what I expect and my, the value I get um, when I go to the office is more on like the social aspect, right? I love going to the office when I actually don't have a lot of back-to-back -back meetings, which I might just take from my desk anyways at the office. And it's actually when I have more open time to just connect with people and have those random bump-ins in the office when I like being in the, in the office because it, it's something I can't get at home. So, right. yeah. So we are social creatures. So, of course, yeah. that's a very important part of our happiness. We noticed that during the pandemic when we couldn't socialize and be with each other. Um, at Seismic, we're trying something new, actually. We're redesigning our workplace experience based on mm. preferences. So, you know, there used to be a concept of neighborhoods, all of finance sat together, engineering, etc. Um, but it didn't allow the bumping into that you just talked about, the mm -hmm. social interaction. And sometimes that's where creativity sparks. So we're playing with this new concept where we're redesigning our work spots based on preferences. So you might want to come into the office and be heads down working on a project. So you have a quiet space. Um, okay. You might want to come into the office, but be surrounded by people, but not engage in too much conversation. So we call that the library. Or you might want to come into the office and really socialize and work with your peers. So then you have a long table and you're working with people across different parts of the organization. So we're playing with that concept. I'll let you know how it goes. Very cool. But we're trying to meet employees' needs um, in mm. the world that we're in. So in that scenario, are there not assigned desks? And it's kind of depending on what the employee preference is, even on, on a on a day-to-day -day basis as opposed to a permanent basis? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's no assigned desk. Now we know humans are creatures of habits. So yeah. they may go back to a similar space, um, but we're hoping that the environment will draw them into different spaces based on their needs. And people may move multiple spaces during the day. They may go to a quiet, quieter spot to hold a meeting. After lunch, they may be at an open table. Um, so we're, we're testing some of those theories out. Yeah, very fun. I'm sure there's never a dull moment, right, in, in yeah. your role and lots of experimentation, iteration, expectations changing across the board. So it must be a very fun and interesting job. It is. It's actually very exciting to be a chief people officer right now. I feel like yeah. the role has really evolved and grown over the years. And those who worry that we didn't get a seat at the table, well, we are front and center now, you know, coming through the pandemic coming through some of the social issues and uprisings over the years. And then of course, now as we think about the future of work, it sits squarely with you know the talent teams. Absolutely, yeah, great. And we'll uh, come back to kind of the topic around what you're currently doing at Seismic and also wanted to hear more about your epic 14 year run at oh. Autodesk. Um, but thought we could maybe turn back the clock a little bit and start at the very beginning, so. Could you share a little bit more about um, your upbringing, where you're born, what your childhood was like? Sure, I was born in Shanghai, China, and I was born to parents that um, are from China. My dad grew up in Beijing um, and lived in Hong Kong for a little bit, and my mom's from Shanghai. And they really suffered, I would say, and I use that word intentionally through the Cultural Revolution. And they wanted something different for me and my sister. 
my sister is four years older than I am. And so we all immigrated to the US. Um, almost as political refugees, if you will, um, when I was about four mm -hmm. or five years old. And we decided mm -hmm. to stay in California, even though my father had a job in Boston, uh, because we fell in love with California, the beauty of the state. We felt comfortable here as recent immigrants, and it just became home for us for actually most of my life I lived in California. Mm. So was your dad actually commuting to Boston, or could he work? No, he um, he was an engineer in China mm -hmm. by trade, and um, when he came here, he actually secured a job in Boston. But this probably is early for many of your viewers. Back in the 80s, there were more engineers than pe what people knew what to do with. So he had a hard mm -hmm. time finding something when he first came to California. So instead, my parents opened up an ice cream parlor. <laughs> so they had an what ice a lucky cream kid. Parlor. Yes, I was a very lucky kid, but I probably overindulged because to this day, I do not like ice cream. <laughs> what? Like oh my God. I, it's funny because I have two uh, young kids, five and six, and I'm like, do you think, I asked them this the other, do you think anybody doesn't like ice cream? We're like, no way. Ice cream <laughs> is like, the, so you actually don't enjoy ice cream anymore because you're so exposed to it as a I child? So <laughs> I mean, I was quite young at that time, I think five yeah, yeah. six. After school, we just hung out at the ice cream parlor and the smell of the sweet ice cream. The sugar, yeah. It couldn't get off of me. So, did not become a fan after that. Wow. Favorite flavor, at least when you're a kid, do you have one? Favorite flavor, um, there's the bubble gum, of course. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. It doesn't like bubble gum. I was a fan of chocolate. My sister liked vanilla. And then once in a while, we were really daring and then we did the mint chocolate chip. <laughs> oh yeah when you wanted some of the heat yeah the that's right oh um, interesting but they had an ice cream parlor just for a couple of years and then my yeah. dad ended up finding a job as an engineering tech he was a little bit older when he moved to the u.s his english wasn't so good so it was yeah. hard for him to find a full-fledged engineering job so he became an engineering tech in the semiconductor business and he was mm. in that space for a really long time until he retired um, and my mom kind of did different jobs, typical immigrant story, odds and yeah. ends to try to keep the family going. Um, she ultimately landed in biotech as a technician as well mm -hmm. um, and spent a majority of her career there. On the side, she taught piano and Chinese and, you know, tried to fill in the gaps. So did you speak Chinese at home, number one? Number two, is it fair to assume you also learned how to play the piano when you're a child? Or? <laughs> Yes, I played the piano for many years and I'm terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> and I finally decided this is not worth my effort because the talent just really is not there. Uh, um, uh. But I do appreciate music. I love opera and I love all sorts of music. And I think some of that is, is my upbringing. Um, I did speak Chinese at home. What was interesting was I felt quite divided. You know, in, in my home, I had a very typical upbringing that would equate to an upbringing in China. We spoke mm. Chinese, we ate Chinese food, we watched Chinese TV. It was a way for my parents, I think, to connect to their roots because they came yeah. to a different country in their 40s and 50s. Uh, they were a little bit older when they had me. Um, and it was so jarring for them that coming home was their safe haven. It was just comfortable mm -hmm. for them. But for me, it was so different because I yeah. grew up as an American, basically. So 
my school life, my friends, very Americanized. I, you know, I was a cheerleader. Yeah. I was into all the clubs. And then I came home and, you know, lived this very Chinese life. Um, so, you know, I, I had a hard time integrating the two mm -hmm. until I actually went to college. That's when yeah. I started to appreciate the different environments that I grew up in and actually found a beautiful integration where I could feel very Chinese and American mm. at the same time. And it wasn't a choice that I had to make. Yeah. 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 Cause I do feel like same with me, right? When I was younger, it's kind of like, well, on the outside, it's all westernized and that's kind of the ideal right because that's not what you're surrounded by that's what your peers care about but on the inside it's a totally different experience and i think similar to you it wasn't until i was in my 20s and now 30s where i'm like i can appreciate the um intersection of the two and it's not an either or right it's really an end type of conversation so right and you um, mentioned you have children i have a five-year-old yeah. And I am very conscious and I think about what that experience means for him because I've yeah. sent him on a path to attend a Chinese a school. So he's at an immersion school. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we want to bring in the Korean culture that's uh, important to, you know, his father and to me. Uh, so we're always thinking about what does that mean? Right. And I love that word inter intersectionality because I do mm. think that's that's the right way to think about it so i this is where i need some life advice from you, <laughs> you linda because my wife is korean like your husband and i'm chinese and even the language how have you navigated what language your son is learning and also making sure it's equitable um you know within the household and across the korean chinese culture I don't know that we've uh, really made uh, the right choice here. Yeah. Yeah, we're constantly evaluating. Um, but right now, actually in preschool, he attended a Mandarin preschool okay. because I felt learning the Chinese written words is really an advantage. It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult, right? Yeah. Difficult, but it's an advantage because if you know how to read the traditional language, you can go to Japan and be yeah. able to navigate even if you don't speak Chinese or Japanese. Yeah. Um, and then there's so many different dialects in China that anchoring on the written word could be you know, really helpful. And I personally think it's beautiful. I think the written mm. Chinese language is there's so much history and culture wrapped in a word that I think it's quite lovely to learn. Um, so we, we did put him in Mandarin school for preschool and now he's in Cantonese um cantonese kindergarten so the poor child wow. is wrapping his head around different chinese languages while the the writing is the same um yeah. and then in terms of korean culture he takes taekwondo so that's our, our nod to the korean culture and yeah. i hope that when he's in you know junior high we'll be able to integrate korean language in his studies as well yeah yeah great and even kind of speaking on your childhood what were you curious of, uh, about as a child what did where did you find yourself naturally gravitating to whether it's subjects in schools or or uh, extracurriculars yeah um i love stories hearing people's stories um maybe it's because my parents are immigrants and they told me just such fascinating stories about them growing up and it was so different my experience in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but anytime there was any storytelling, whether it was fictional books or non-fictional books or you know pieces of um, essays that I could write about my own life, I just naturally gravitated to stories about people 
and mm. what they learned about themselves, what they overcame, what they were able to pass on to others. Um, and I think that's probably a big influence as to why I'm in my career now. Mm. Interesting. Was there any tension about uh, between your interest in storytelling and like the human aspect versus you know the more hard like hardcore subjects right that yeah. the stereotypically asians might steer their child towards like you know sciences and math or were you able to kind of balance the two sides of your brain and your interests I there i think i was able to balance it's a great question yeah. i'm not sure i reflected on it as much my dad's an engineer so naturally he would bring home books to help me, you know, get better at math, you know, maybe even be more advanced than some of the studies that I have in school. I found it fun, though, because you can really solve a problem and to a certain degree tell a story with with math. Yeah. Um, so that part didn't bother me. My parents were a little atraditional in the sense they never pushed me to be your mm. stereotypical doctor or lawyer yeah. or, you know, they really wanted me to find my own happiness. I think That's it was great. because of the trauma of the Cultural Revolution where mm. they didn't have much freedom. So they wanted me to kind of live what was best for me. My sister did end up being a lawyer, so I think she fulfilled that dream. Um, and they just wanted both of us to, yeah. you know, be able to make the choices that they perhaps mm. didn't have. So your sister's decision to, to become a lawyer, that was on her own volition, right? Obviously your parents would support, but there was no, nudging towards a specific type of career track there was not in fact yeah. my sister would say that my parents were against it and i don't mm. know that they were against it they were just afraid so mm. to your slogan um justin see it so they can be it we you know we were a pretty blue collar family we didn't hang around u.s lawyers right yeah, so yeah. they didn't see that as a viable option for my sister. They were worried about discrimination. They were worried about her hitting a ceiling of some sort. And yeah. so they, they wanted to protect her and said, well, why don't you be, you know, a legal aid? <laughs> um, but she had different aspirations and she's highly successful now. But I think she would say that her parents, like our parents, didn't necessarily support her. But I think they wanted to challenge her and really put a mirror up to reflect some of the difficulties that she may encounter. Um, mm. And I believe that has made her stronger and that's why she's so successful. Mm. Great. So kind of fast forwarding a little bit to uh, college. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit more about what you ended up deciding to study in college and what led you down that path? Right. So I um, entered college um, without a degree uh, declaration. I wanted mm -hmm. to explore everything that was offered. And I quickly gravitated towards uh, social ecology, social science, psychology. Um, mm -hmm. I, again, you know, I just love the inner workings of humans, the many stories people have, and how we as a society can support those stories. Um, I went to UC Irvine and was pretty involved in school. I, you know, had lots of clubs, I was in a sorority, I was the LGBT peer counselor, and through all of those experiences, I always gravitated to what I can do to help people. Um, so at one point, I thought I wanted to be a social worker. So my senior year, I did an internship at a women's shelter, and I realized with that experience, I cannot separate work and life. Mm -hmm. It was a gut-wrenching experience, and it made me really concerned about 
people's well-being and the state of trauma that they were experiencing. And I didn't think that I was mature enough or sophisticated enough to step into that world. So I thought, okay, well, if I still want to help people, how do I translate that into business where I feel like you can have an impact without being so burdened by societal failures and issues? Yeah. And um, I moved, you know, naturally into recruiting because I was so involved in school and, you know, mm. saw a lot of campus recruiting. It just seemed like a nice segue into the corporate environment. Um, I learned about HR actually in my first job and I was lucky and blessed that I loved the career that I've chosen. It really matches what I've always wanted to do and my skills. Mm. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's one great thread that I've seen in kind of your career path, which is it's always kind of been in the people HR um, function within an organization. So I feel like either you knew yourself really well when you're uh, in college, and it sounds like you did, and or you're also lucky, right, in being in kind of the function and the type of work that you wanted to do straight out of college, which definitely wasn't the case for me. So yeah. do you yeah. feel like you had a really strong hypothesis, even kind of finishing college to say, hey, I think this is where I want to be. And it ended up being pretty right. I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. frankly, I think luck is an important factor in most people's success. Um, but I also think, you know, keeping your options open is really important too. So mm -hmm. sometimes I do think, you know, uh, people can be very narrow in their career ambitions yeah. and that may block them from seeing opportunities that present themselves that can make their biggest dreams even bigger. Um, so I've always said, like, I want to be open to where my life takes me. Um, as long as mm -hmm. I know directionally where I want to go like how I get there, the different paths and discoveries along the way just makes life more beautiful. Yeah, yeah, well said. And I mean, even, you know, you, earlier in your career, you had a few different HR roles at LD Fiber Optics, Light Connect, Thermo Fisher Scientific. Mm -hmm. How did you know or make that decision that it's time to move on from a company? Mm -hmm. And th those three roles, I think, contrast with being at 14 years at Autodesk too, where you you had a progressive series of different types of roles and moved up. Um, but I think I would love to just hear your take on that, right? When do you go deep and just move up the ranks versus maybe find opportunity elsewhere? I have the saying that I kind of navigated my career by looking at the right way to do something, figuring out how I can take that right way and do it better. And then really thinking about the best way to do something and then figuring out kind of on my own, so my way. Um, so my first career was actually, my first job was at the Capital Group and they're an established institution, uh, very low turnover, just such a great company to work for. Um, they manage the American funds and I learned the right way to do everything. And they have the money, the people, the expenditures. Um, and then the dot-com time called me and I did not want to miss on the funds. So I joined the two startups and I thought, you know what, I'm going to take all my learning, best practices from Capital Group and actually do it a better way because you don't always have to have all of these steps, all of the people, all of the costs. You can get there in, you know, perhaps a shorter, shorter route. <clears throat> so I was blessed that I was able to have that experience to establish two HR organizations at startups and really, you know, try things and fail and figure out a better way. Um, and then the dot-com bust happened. So I thought, well, where should I go 
where I can still focus on what I love to do, which is HR, but in an environment that's a little bit more stable. And that's when I went into consulting. Um, and I did primarily mm -hmm. consulting for biotech companies because they have long cycles. They were still flying around in private jets, so plenty yeah. of money to invest in people. And I found through you know some of the consulting practices the best way to do things, really analytically understanding the business, et cetera. And I love that. I had so much fun consulting, and I actually could have seen a career for myself in that uh, consulting space. Mm -hmm. um, but I fell in love. I got married, and my husband was moving to Michigan. And I thought, well, given we were still towards the end of the downturn, I want to join a big company and really figure out my way and navigate and learn in that company. And that's when I joined Autodesk and I began my, what you call epic run of 14 years. Um, I was really intentional at Autodesk. I called it kind of my way, figuring out what skills mm -hmm. I wanted to develop, which organizations I wanted exposure to. I was mostly an HR business partner during that time, which gave me a front row seat to really learn from some of the best leaders and be in discussions probably well above my pay grade at, in the beginning and to be able to coach and have really deep conversations um, with senior leaders that gave me you know lots of learning opportunities and that helped me understand that you know i uh, was good at what i was doing i could also round out my ex you know experience and viewpoints by going to business school um so i went to business school and got my MBA mm -hmm. and I got it. Oh, okay. Got it. And was it an easy decision for you to go to school? Uh, number one and number two, was that full-time or were you doing that part-time in parallel to working at Autodesk? Uh, I was doing that while working full-time. So oh, it was wow. quite a load. Um, yeah. It was an easy decision because I love learning. I'm just naturally curious. I feel like I'm a lifelong learner. And I love the idea of business school where you're interacting with each other, you're learning from each other's experiences. I'm not great of a learner if I'm learning by myself. I'm much better in teams. Um, so it just fit my style, my way of learning. And I knew that I wanted to stay in the business world. And I feel like the people strategy for an organization must match their business strategy. Because oftentimes people is your number your biggest asset. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, for an HR leader, you need to understand the language of business. And by me attending business school, learning about all the different functions of business, it made me, you know, better equipped to support the organization. Yeah. Got it. So even within um Autodesk, you took on a variety of different roles, right? Or was it always within kind of the HRBP function, just at, at varying levels of seniority? It was always within the HR talent space, but yep. it was very different roles within different mm. departments. Um, you know, Autodesk is a pretty big company, so I was able to have those opportunities, um, mainly because I, you know, wasn't so singularly focused on one path. I yep. wanted to learn different skills. It didn't matter to me what the title was. I just wanted to add different mm. experience and skills to my portfolio because I knew it would benefit me um, and round me out as a leader. I was also super lucky that I had a great manager. I had some great mentors and they they did open up a lot of doors for me. Mm. So it sounds like you were really optimizing for learning and growth, right? More so than anything else. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then even in that, like something I think about a lot for myself is around risk, right? 
yeah. level of risk tolerance and even how one defines a career risk. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about kind of the concept of risk and how that has um, shaped some of your career decisions, whether it's to stay at a company or to leave a company? It's such a great question. Um, and so my parents were not very risky people. Um, mm. You know, I, I think you find that sometimes with immigrant families, it's sort of like, well, it was hard to get here. So let's, you know, be conservative. Um, so my, my sister and I are both not very risky in our minds. I think if you mm -hmm. compare us to our peers, though, we might actually be more risky than we think we are in terms of our decision making. Um, but, you know, it depends on where you are in life. I wish I took more risks in life, but only in the sense that, you know, one thing I didn't do that I wish I did was work abroad. And mm -hmm. I think that would have been such incredible experience, would have opened my eyes in many different ways. But I didn't feel comfortable taking that risk because I was so comfortable in, you know, the circle that I was in and comfortable with the language and country. And to put myself out there just seemed like a big, big risk that I was taking. Um, so there's certainly aspects of my career when I look back that I wish I took more risk. But when I think about risk for me, at least, I think about, you know, what um, am I running towards? Um, what are the comforts that I'm leaving behind? And what is, mm -hmm. you know, what am I going to gain? What am I going to learn along the way? Um, and that's how I quantify risk. Um, and usually if it's aligned with my goals and I have the support that I need, it's a risk worth taking. Mm. So now let's talk a little bit about the transition from Autodesk to Seismic. Mm. Um, how did that opportunity present itself? And then what was kind of the, mental math on the risk equation for you when you're making that decision yeah well like you mentioned i was really focused on learning and growth um, i never really thought about that top job um mm -hmm. but i was talking to my mentor and i shared that with her and she said well why not i can see you doing that and you know i actually had never had someone say that to me before and i thought well maybe i could um and then the pandemic happened and i saw that wow life is short if this is something I really want to do, I need to go out there and try it. Mm. Um, and it just so happened, I was lucky that a recruiter called me. And, you know, I was having a day where I was like, um, am I making the impact that I want to make here? You know, we all have one of those days, right? Um, so the yeah. recruiter called me, talked about the opportunity. Autodesk is also a seismic user, so I was familiar with the product. Yeah. And it seemed like the sales enablement space was a great space with lots of opportunities. I met the CEO and I just really clicked with him. He seemed genuinely focused on people. Um, mm. And I love the idea of a founder led company because those companies are often mission driven, they're purposeful um, and things quickly snowballed from there. And I decided to make the leap didn't feel that risky to me back mm. then and it still doesn't feel that risky to me now i feel like i've done what i meant to do at autodesk and i leave with great friends and great learnings and i'm just on to my next next career path and um you know by by looking at it that way it didn't feel like it was that big of a risk yeah yeah so just closing out a chapter and then starting a new one right that's right yeah and under your scope as uh, chief people officer, what's included in that and what isn't that, you know, your typical outsider might not be aware of uh, 
within the scope of a CPO? So I um, lead the HR operations function. So if you think kind of foundational HR things like benefits, compensation systems, mm -hmm. um, I also lead talent acquisition. So all of your recruiting, hiring, onboarding, um, business partners, so HR leaders that support the business to ensure that the talent strategy matches the business strategy. And we're really thinking about mm -hmm. employees as we grow. I also lead internal communications, um, learning, growth and development, and workplace experience. So the facilities, you know, the experience that someone walks into their office, or what we want for our remote employees. Um, so those are all the functions. And then recently I inherited um, DEI. So I led DEI for Autodesk um, during the summer of you know, I think the so summer of social rising, I guess I would call it. So mm -hmm. I learned so much during that time in 2020. So very mm. privileged to, to lead that function for Seismic now. Mm, that's great. And that is a lot, right? So it's a lot under your um, purview. And then, you know, one interesting thing that comes to mind is the level of discourse that is kind of supported within an organization, right? I know there are some companies like, Coinbase, for example, who said, okay, just don't talk about non-work stuff, essentially. Like, yes. Keep your political opinions on yourself. Talk about business stuff, that's fine. Anything else, don't do that on company time. How do you feel like companies should strike that balance between creating that psychological safety and a platform for everybody's voices to be heard and valued mm -hmm. versus you know, much more, um, I would say like militant way of running a business, which is just focus on the work and everything else, do that on your own time and on your own platform. Yeah. How would you suggest like striking that balance? It's such a great question. And one that I think leaders struggled with over the years and continue to struggle with now. Um, and I think it's different for every company. Mm -hmm. um, so companies that like Patagonia, Whereas their core mission is very much aligned to a specific, a more specific viewpoint, and perhaps a little bit more political than you know a company yeah. that services all customers. So I do think it needs to be anchored on the company, the strategy, etc. But I also think it's impossible to separate work and life. We've learned that over mm -hmm. the last couple of years, yeah. and sometimes yeah. macro factors causes stress for your employees and stress produces poor results, poor collaboration. And as an employer, you know, you're probably working with your employee more than they see their family. So you have an obligation to address those stresses. Um, sometimes employees just simply want, you know, that stress to be acknowledged, um, that, you know, their, yeah. their stress is seen by leaders of the company, mm -hmm. even if they disagree with the viewpoint that you know, the fact that you're being seen, wow, that's the biggest gift you can give anyone. Um, so how I typically counsel leaders is if it's connected to our business, meaning, you know, our connected, our employees live in that space and there's a hurricane, we should comment mm -hmm. on it. Yeah. If it's connect connected to our strategy, even if it's a little political, we should take a stand because it's connected mm -hmm. to how we function as a company. Anything else, we should simply listen and acknowledge because there's so mm -hmm. much going on in the world. Just the act of listening and acknowledging, um, I think, is is more than what many people um, expect from their employer. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's such a great point you make around we're kind of bringing our whole selves to work. And obviously the pandemic just kind of forced that because you see our kids walk in on video conferences or people wearing their pajamas to, to take calls. And I feel like that's such a huge shift from, let's say, 10 years ago, where I feel like the typical mindset was I'm compartmentalizing my life when I'm physically at the office and there, that's my work self. I take the train or subway to work and commute that's kind of my disconnect and then i'm home and and that was my different identity and now it's all kind of mashed together so i think that puts it impetus on corporations to to your point linda acknowledging that and also creating the space just to even feel heard so yeah, yeah. and what's interesting is the platforms have changed too you know mm -hmm. several years ago leaders had the platform and they would use that platform sometimes to express their views that weren't necessarily aligned with all of their employees' views. And if you truly embrace the idea of diversity and you know inviting different perspectives and you know perhaps not always agreeing with all of the different perspectives, but at least listening to them, you know, having singular platforms just for leaders, you know, don't necessarily work. So I love that there's Slack available now, that there's yeah. Twitter, and there's people who can put their voices out regardless of you know, the platform that's been given to them because of their title or, or where they sit in the company. Yeah, absolutely. And also kind of wanted, you know, given how things have transpired in the last few weeks around a lot of tech companies announcing layoffs, like thousands of people have been impacted. Yeah. Any folk, any rec, uh, advice or recommendation you'd give to folks who might be concerned about losing their job, right? Because it's obviously a great sense of stress when you feel like you might be impacted by an impending announcement um how would you kind of counsel folks to get through this um in a positive and productive way yeah it's definitely a hard time for everyone um you know first and foremost you can only control what you can control so unless mm. you're a decision maker there's not much you can do to fret about something right now um, but I'm a planner, so if I was worried about that, what I would do is, well, let me, you know, see how I'm feeling about the job that I'm in. Is this an opportunity for me to take a slightly different route if I do get impacted? Mm -hmm. Or is this job that I, something that I love? And if so, how do I emphasize that to the decision makers? Um, do I have my resume, you know, up and running in case? something unexpected happens and how can I fire up my network to help me? Um, so as a planner, you know, I, I always think about those things. So at least I'm spreading and putting my time and attention on things that I can control versus some mm -hmm. things that may be out of my control. Yeah, great advice. So reading news articles or social media probably isn't that productive, right? Because <laughs> that just creates more swirl and cognitive dissonance to some degree. So. Sometimes I just want to turn off the news because I feel sure. like it does not help me, um, you know, be productive or move forward with my stress. You get stuck a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The next question I have is around money, right? So mm -hmm. that's as part of your purview as uh, chief people officer and in your in your past roles as well. Curious to know, has, how has money kind of factored into career or life decisions for you, right? And I feel like you know, we both have young children, we have a family, the importance of money has obviously been 
raise once there are other mouths to feed. But I'm curious to know if money has ever been kind of a primary factor for you make, deciding to stay or potentially leave the job. Um, you know, for me, money has not always been a factor. And maybe it's mm. because I grew up, you know, pretty poor. So we mm. were able to make do with whatever we had. Um, so I was always a good saver, uh, never too extravagant. Mm -hmm. um, and I always think like money is helpful, but actually living a full life, pursuing what you really love, that's more exciting. Um, mm. This isn't necessarily my story, but I'll share that my husband actually went to podiatry school, which is four years, did a changing career because he just didn't see himself doing that profession and being in that space and went to MB, um, and med school for four years. So he basically delayed his career for a good, you know, four to six years. And mm. if he was focused on money, if we were focused on money, because we were married at that time, you probably wouldn't have made that decision and would have been really unhappy at work. So I always think about, you know, pursue your passion. The money will come and people all, will always figure out how to live within their means. Um, I, I realize I say that with great privilege uh, because that's not always the case. Um, but I do think that if you're working and you're in a professional job, you're, you're able to figure it out somehow. Um, because more money perhaps just means bigger expenses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's no shortage of things you can spend money on, right? Whether that it is, is <laughs> higher education for your kids. And there are ways to justify it too in your head that, oh, this is worth that. But yeah. Yes, that's a great point. Um, and last question is, you have a busy role, busy job, you have household commitments, you're raising a young child. How do you find time to take care of yourself and make sure that you're fully recharged and have the most energy to give back to everybody else? It's a good question as well. Um, so we are, I, I'm in a working couple um, with our child. So my husband works full time, mm. I work full time. Yeah. We have very demanding jobs that we are very proud of. One of the first things that we tell um, our son is that we want to go to work. We choose to go to work because mm -hmm. we love it. Not that I have to go to work in the morning, but I choose to. And sometimes I choose to leave work early and attend his you know, kindergarten, Thanksgiving luncheon. Um, but, you know, I'm very lucky that I have choice in my life to do that. Yeah. And, you know, in the past, we've been very proud that we've been able to manage it independently. While we have family in the Bay Area, we've not leaned mm. on them as much because of the pandemic and, you know, the, the germs, the, the little ones yeah. bring home. Um, but we are now at a point with so many drop-offs and extracurricular activities that we are thinking about getting some help. Um, and that's probably the first time that I've invested in my well-being um, mm. since I became a mom. Um, and asking for help is really hard, especially for me, because I think I can do it all. And I think it'll be a better experience for me and my child and my husband if I'm there. Um, but if I'm not at my best, even if I'm there, I'm not mentally there. And I feel like well, in the past year or two, it's been a little bit like that. So I'm changing things up a little bit. Ask me the question next year. I think I'll have a little bit more health and probably, you know, a little bit more space Great. in my mind for myself. Great. So you have decided to get more help, but that you haven't, can, you haven't started to get the support yet. 
I have not started because okay, I get okay. another item on my path. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, helpful. I mean, this is helpful because this is the same situation as my wife and I, right? We're both working parents. We're juggling drop-off pickups, in-person meetings, working remotely, have grandparent help as well. And I think you sometimes we're kind of playing with fire, right? Like we're right on the edge to be like, okay, this week I need some help. And then other weeks it's totally fine and perfect. And yeah. I think, you know, acknowledging when you need the help is is step one and uh, something we've thought about as well. So right. great. Thank you, Linda. This is such a great chat. Really enjoyed it, learned a lot. Um, wishing you and your family a great Thanksgiving and all the best. Thank you. I had so much fun and I uh, hope you have a lovely holiday as well. And I will chat with you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well, stay healthy, and follow your heart. See you soon.